In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and welcome to episode 402 this week on the show curtis hickman co-founder and chief creative officer of the void is here to talk about his new and quite excellent book hyper reality the art of designing impossible experiences Really, it's excellent. I've read the whole thing, and it's swiftly becoming a cornerstone in how I'm thinking about immersive work. But before we get into the interview, it's time for some quick thanks, starting with Sea Tickets, sponsor of this year's Next Stage Immersive Summit Making an Impact Pillar, who, thanks to that sponsorship, are bringing you all of NoPro for the next few weeks. Sea Tickets has proudly supported thousands of clients across the globe in areas as diverse as historic attractions like Stonehenge, immersive theater like The Burnt City, and important cultural touchstones like LA Pride. Thanks again to Sea Tickets for helping us with the big swing of the next stage this year. Of course, none of this is possible without our Patreon backers. And as we gear up for the fall, and with all the spooky season shenanigans and some ambitious long-term plans on the horizon, your continued support is more important than ever. This week, the ranks of our backers are joined by New Canvas and Lori Meeker, who are helping us fight the churn. But I gotta be frank, we need more. Every $5 a month backer gets us stronger. So we're on a campaign to take us from 418 backers up to 450, with our next milestone just seven backers away at 425. And I wanna see that happen in the next couple of weeks. If you rely on what we do and you're not a Patreon backer yet, please hit up patreon.com slash noproscenium and make a $5 a month pledge. It not only powers the podcast and websites for NoPro and Everything Immersive, it also gets you into our member-only Discord. You'll find a whole community of creators and fans there. Backers can link their Patreon accounts to get access. If you're already a backer, help us spread the word. So many of you do, but a lot of you don't. Drop a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and share the articles you find useful or the episodes of the podcast on your social media platform of choice. And there's so many to choose from. It helps immensely. We are always no proscenium, except on Insta and on threads where we are no underscore proscenium. But if you search no proscenium, we'll turn up. Oh, it's, it's such a mess. As always, Big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulet, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Kurt Collins, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Lecker the Cool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And hey, we're also on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers. Hit me up at noah at noprosinium.com for details. And with that, on with the show. (music) 
Experienced designer and magician Curtis Hickman is best known to this audience as the co-founder and chief creative officer of The Void, the era-defining location-based entertainment experience platform that brought to life Star Wars in Secrets of the Empire, Jumanji in Reverse the Curse, and the haunting Nicodemus, Demon of Invanishment, amongst others, while using the term hyperreality to describe their work. Hyperreality is also the title of his new book, Hyperreality, The Art of Designing Impossible Experiences. Curtis, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it is my pleasure, Noah. Thank you for having me. Why now with the book? It's, it's 2023. Why, why, why at this particular moment have the book come out? Uh, so I started writing the book at the very start of the uh, pandemic. Um, so as, as Void Location started shutting down, I started to think a lot about all this cool knowledge that we'd gained uh, through brute force experience, um, uh, as well as uh, these laws that we would send to our partners that would explain sort of how we felt about experience design and and how and why we approached experiences from a certain uh, view viewpoint. And uh, uh, I just thought it was all it was just really cool stuff, and I I. I it always stuck in my head that I, I just wish that this book had existed when I'd first started uh, in, in, in immersive entertainment, because it would have really helped, uh, uh, helped a lot of uh, sort of the, the bruises and the, uh, the mistakes that were made along the way. It would have really uh, been a big value. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. I, I, so I wanted to sort of get the knowledge out there. I wanted to be able to, to, to have people take advantage of the things that we'd learned um, and I just had to go to the void and say, is it okay if I write this book? And it was, a, as you can imagine, kind of a, a big discussion among the powers that be, whether or not uh, the book should ever exist at all and what was proprietary knowledge and, and, uh, you know, what was the, the secret ingredients that they, they didn't want to reveal and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, ultimately we came to a, a resolution or a compromise where there is a small set of things that they said, okay, yeah, we, we, we feel that this is proprietary and you cannot talk about this set of things, but anything outside of that, uh, go for it. And I, that was awesome. And honestly, it was really awesome of them, uh, to allow me to do that. So I said, great. And, uh, and I started writing and it took this long to finish. <laughs> so it was, it's a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of thoughts. It's a small book. It is not a small book. No. There's lots and lots of side notes. Um, lots of them. Although I, I say that <laughs> yeah. people think I'm, I'm knocking it and I don't. Like this is literally, I was so happy to see margin notes because that is how my brain works. Um, oh, good. It's not just me then. That's good. No. Do you have, um, okay, sorry, everybody nerding out. Uh, do you have the making Ghostbusters script, that shooting script? Thing? No, no. Oh my God. You don't know about, yeah, you, you no. know people. So I, I right. I'll have to show maybe, I don't know if my copy is close to hand. If it is, I'll, I'll drag it out when we're done. Uh, this was, it was made in like the eighties and it is like an early shooting. It is like a, is a shooting script uh, or pre-shooting script of the original Ghostbusters. Tons of production art in it. Lots of Bernie Wrights and stuff. Uh, lots of unused scenes, um, storyboards where you can see when John Candy was supposed to be Lewis Tully. And the, the reason why I mentioned is that like, this is the kinds of notes it uses. The side notes in the margins. It's maybe the single greatest like script book slash making of a movie book ever made. And oh, I got to check that out. That sounds awesome. Yeah. You, yeah. you in particular should get your hands on it. Uh, anyway, right. 
the the side notes made me think of it. Okay, sorry everybody. Uh, footnote number one is done. Um, yeah. <laughs> the uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead in my planned questions, which is you know this this idea of some stuff being proprietary. You you don't give away all the void secrets because of that, but you do dive deep on some like redirected walking. Yeah, I know it's got to feel weird to the powers that be to have anything out there, but you, particularly, uh, you know, in your magician, your magician brain, does it feel weird for you to have some of your secrets out there in the world? Yeah, magic's such a funny thing. Uh, you practice for hours and hours and hours so that nobody knows that you're doing something, right? It's like you're the exact opposite of a, a juggler or something. I mean. Uh, you practice things so that nobody knows that you can do those things. Um, and uh, so there's there's a bit of that, especially from the guest point of view. Obviously, there's a lot that uh, I don't want the guests to know. But I also knew that the guest was never, uh, your average Joe is never going to read this book. You know, this, this is not the kind of thing uh, that uh, is going to hit the New York Times bestseller list. This is a, a, a book very focused on experienced designers and experienced design. And uh, so I, that, that part wasn't worried about. And so really the question was, is it okay, or I should, should be, is it okay for a magician to write a book for other magicians? And the answer is absolutely yes. And in fact, magicians are encouraged to get their information out there so we can kind of help each other. And um, There's sort of this unwritten law that magicians need money too. So it's okay if <laughs> a magician wants to reveal his secrets and uh, uh, especially to other magicians. And that's how I feel. And I, I, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but I, is that if you're reading this, odds are I, I consider you a magician of the immersive arts and uh, therefore I don't feel bad uh, telling you these secrets. Do, do you feel like these two art forms are either like twins or entwined or coming from like the same origin point? Cause there's the funny thing about immersive to me is always that it, it pulls upon so many different disciplines. It has a lot of parents at the end of the day, but, yeah. but how do you, where do you think the, the resonance between the magical arts and immersive are? Um, I mean that I try to, I try to touch on that and explain that as saying that, that the magical part is, is essentially the looser, the, the, the illusory or illusionary aspects of uh, experience design specifically, which is a very broad subject uh, and, and art has, there's so much illusion design in art that magic can't claim. Right. Um, uh, you know, things like trompe l'oeil uh, from a magician's point of view, it's like, Oh, we could own that. Like that's, uh, you know, trompe l'oeil, that's a, that's an aspect of, of, uh, of magic design, but really it, wasn't done by magicians you know it's uh, but it has that sort of a strange magical aspect to it uh likewise uh you know things like forced perspective or other like illusion design techniques and experience design or theater design are uh are things that a magician might claim as being part of the magical arts you know there's might say oh it's just part of art uh and you know when it comes down to it uh, if you're, maybe you're trying to make a realistic painting and if that's your goal then you're trying to create the illusion that the oils or chalk or whatever it is you're, you're using, it looks more like a, a realistic rendering or a photo, if you will, of, of uh, you know, a, a mimetic representation of a scene as opposed to, uh, you know, stick figures on a wall. And so you're trying to create an illusion uh, with, uh, with that chalk or with those, those oil paints. 
Um, so uh, I guess magic and or illusion and art are are intrinsically connected in in a lot a lot of ways. All I do when it comes to um, experience design and specifically hyper reality design is try to really shine a spotlight on the idea that because I feel like there's that connection between art and magic uh, and art and illusion, that learning more about uh, the craft that is dedicated to illusion design can only amplify your art further. Mm. Uh, and especially, of course, with hyper-reality that I, I define is uh, it's, it's not just creating a realistic experience. It's, it's an impossible experience. And, uh, you know, so much of uh, just going into to Disney is that you're trying to live in an impossible experience, right? You get on a ride, but the point of that ride is to place you into a film and there, that, that you couldn't ever literally be put into because it's, you know, just a, was drawing on, on, on cells that were flipped and animated. You know, it's uh, uh, just a really, uh, or, or CGI renderings. And, and, and now you're trying to put somebody into that position and that's impossible to do, but how could we create the illusion that that's actually happening? Uh, and so uh, to me, uh, that the, the ability to step inside of an illusion and to live in impossible experience is at the heart of what so much experience design and immersive theater and uh, is all about that uh, again it just makes sense to try and apply the lessons of magic and magicians uh, over into that art form in, in a very tangible and hopefully easy under, easy to understand way illusion design and the types of illusions overt and covert that those are two big pillars in the book Possibly the biggest pillar, uh, the biggest frame is to get the reader to start thinking in terms, uh, you know, not, not in terms of hyper-reality as a tool for storytelling, but story building. And I, yeah. wanted to, I wanted to give you a chance to define that term and also wanted to know when you started using that term, when you started leaning on that as part of your, your core lexicon. So story building... Um... I didn't start using the actual term until much later on, um, although the, the thread of what we were trying to do was always there. Uh, but as people started using terms like story living uh, and uh, uh, other similar terms like that, it, it, I, I liked it because it was, it was reaching into the heart of, of what story was trying to accomplish as opposed to a storytelling. Um, but... Uh, to me, storytelling is kind of like what that's what the that's what the author's trying to do, and then story living that's what the guest is trying to do. So, what happens when those two things come together? Mm. Uh, and that's for me, story building. That's that's the partnership that you have between the author and the guest. Um, and because if you just try to let the guest create their own experience, uh, things can get off the rails very quickly. Um, and if you just have the author spoon feed the story to the guest, then that's, we already have that medium. We already have that, that's storytelling. And we have a bunch of different ways of doing that. And as I say in the book, better ways, most of the time of, of doing that, uh, then, then through immersion, uh, because, uh, the, you know, you, as, as, again, as you say in the book, you can't force somebody to look in a certain direction. You can't, uh, make up that, uh, that frame that, um, or, or even sitting in a theater, like then you got the, 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 the proscenium is the frame, obviously. And so right. it's, and so you're, you're able to create these vignettes and create story and flow and thread that, that makes sense to the viewer through focalization. 
Um, but when you step into these immersive experiences, you lose control of that focalization. And now you either need to commit to the partnership or let go of it entirely. Uh, and so I just talk a lot about the book about, about that partnership and, and how you can create this relationship with the guest that allows them to, with you, build a story together that is both meaningful and impactful, that is both experiential and story-driven. I, I really like the term because, you know, when I'm trying to describe this work to people, I often talk in terms of there being uh, the center of gravity uh, being between the audience and the the author and, and there being a tug of war and, mm. you know, immersion being sort of a factor of like where, how, how deep in is it or do they meet in the middle? And I haven't really had a term for what is it that they're doing when they're, they're pulling on the center of gravity and this idea that, well, they're story building. That's, that's the tension between these two forces. That's kind of yeah. teetering back and forth, you know, and, and, you know, you know, we all know it's tug of war. Like it ultimately, like it collapses if one side or the other, you know, like gets it too far off and you don't want that. You want that glorious tension holding on as long as possible and just sort of building, building, building. Yeah, I love that, that lens of tension. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, and some of that, you know, and you get into this towards the end of the book, you cop uh, and, and you cop to writing uh, this part first when you tackle the project. Uh, you get into how story building goes all the way back to D&D and Dungeons and Dragons. And, and that's definitely something that's, you know, been a constant in your life for all kinds of reasons. And D&D is having a moment culturally right now. It was, have, it was starting to have a moment pre-pandemic. And I think that, it even exploded even more because live plays became uh, a way to parasocialize or, or just people playing on Zoom with their friends to actually socialize. So do you feel like we're, we're having people who are more literate about the idea of story building, even if they don't necessarily have the terminology behind it? Absolutely. And, and that's great news. I think, uh, I think you've definitely touched on something that was always a big struggle for us at The Void because we were constantly saying that, well, we're not actually trying to make video games. We're not actually trying to, we're trying to make experiential entertainment that where the guest's story is ultimately driven uh, by them so that when they come out, they're telling their story. Uh, and uh, this was a concept that was really important, uh, especially to me in the beginning, because I felt like that this is, was the, it was the future and I wanted to be part of it. Uh, and it was, um, it's been a long road, I guess, to get people to, to get grownups, especially to start playing again, right. To mm. feel comfortable with, with being able to, to, to step into a part and to play. And one of the things we tried to do a lot at the void was, um, to give people enough permission and to give people, uh, a level of comfort that would allow them to play. Uh, it's a lot easier to play one if you're if you're just doing it with your friends and you're not there with strangers, because uh, then you don't have to worry about how they're judging you or what they think about you. Um, and if uh, and so once you isolate that group and it's just you and your friends going through and you've really immersed them into the world and the environment, uh, as they get used to that uh, and go down that path of conviction, they become more and more um, comfortable with the idea that they can. Uh, be something else or that they can try to uh, push the story or, and be part of that story and play. Um, and uh, D&D is a lot of that, uh, is, 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 is play. 
you know, and some people, they have different levels of comfort with that. Some people, they get really into it and they're going to come to the D&D meeting in their robes and, and they're going to be the great magus, whatever, and, and uh, have an accent the whole time and speak Elvish or whatever. And then you got other people that, are, that just sort of sit down nervously, like, can I throw my daggers now? Is that okay? Which die do I roll? Uh, and my character but all of says that's, this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 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 My yeah. character says this. Like, well, I mean, yeah. is that you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, and if I you actually, I don't, that person, no offense, no offense. There's no offense. No, very, very, very it's different all, style, but yeah. yeah, all of that's all totally acceptable. But yeah. I feel like the longer you play D and D, the more you feel comfortable with the idea of, of blurring that, uh, that, that area between you and your character and yeah. being able to play more. Uh, it often feels to me like sometimes I wonder if people just, some folks have the actor performer gene, and and others don't or or if it's just that we get a culture some people it gets acculturated out of them and other people don't because looking at you know something like the void and thinking of it, thinking of a void adventure like it's a D module makes all the sense in the world to me stepping into a character from jumanji or or stepping into a, a character stepping into the like the the role without a name of a ghostbuster makes all the sense in the world to me there are things that you do when you're doing those roles or there's something very specific if like you wake up and you see the the rock is staring back at you in the mirror right like like yeah. you you know what to do but I was an actor. Like I was drawn into that yeah. space really early on. Of course it's easy for me. I, I look at people on the outside going like, what am I supposed to do? And I, I, I don't quite get that. Did, did you see a lot of that as people came to the void, the resistance or, or, or are people walking through those doors already self-selecting already down that path uh, even, even before they don a computer backpack? Um, you know, it's, 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 we'd see all different kinds come through. Often it's because you have uh, a couple of extroverts in a family that would take a couple of introverts in the family and they would all go together. Right. And, right. and there's a law in the book that says everyone should be having fun. And it's kind of a law that I almost hate telling people that is a law. Uh, and, and to clarify, so in the book, there's, there's 52 laws that, uh, they originally were called the 52 void laws or the 52 laws of the void. And, I called them laws because it was important for me uh, and, and for the void that when we told our partners these laws, that they understood that they, these weren't just like mild suggestions, that these were very important to us. It doesn't mean they can't be broken. Uh, and we would break them all the time as long as we knew which ones we were breaking and why. Um, but that they, were, they needed to be taken seriously um, before they were broken. Uh, and one of them was, was everyone needs to be having fun. And it, and it's, it seems like the weakest of all the laws, like, well, okay, everyone's going to be having fun. But, but the fact is we took it very seriously. We would sit there and say, okay, what kind of person might be in this experience? And let's go through as them. Uh, you know, if I'm, if I am, uh, you know, a 60 year old grandmother, 70 year old grandmother, whatever, going through with, with her, uh, grandchild and they're going through what is going to be fun about all of this for her? Uh, if I'm just super into puzzles, but I'm really kind of a pacifist and don't want to shoot anything, but I'm in the experience, what is there for me? Uh, and how can I affect my subjective story to fit that narrative of how I identify as, as that person? Um, and uh, in some experiences, I think we're more successful at doing that than others. And as time went on, I feel like we got better and better at it. But 
uh, it was something that was always a big part of our design is, is, is designing, trying to design in a way for everyone uh, to enjoy the experience and have fun. So even if you're not a big uh, over dramatic person who can just step into a role, then we tried to take you into account and say, okay, well, here's how you're going to super enjoy this. Uh, and our, our uh, NPS scores were off the charts. Like we, we, we feel like we did a pretty good job of, of walking that line. Yeah, there's 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 a Steinbeck quote you have at the start of the book about, you know, the 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 writer having to you know meet the reader part of the way. Um, I could I could look up the exact quote. I think the bookmark right now because I'm going to drop it onto you, but I'm not going to do that for everybody else at the moment. <laughs> but but that that thought about you know meeting the audience where they are, like that's that's driving a lot of my thinking about you know as as this form, be it using the technology of virtual reality or augmented reality or just using, you know, people and spaces that, that there's so much of it starts with that idea of, okay, where are they when they get to us and, and where can we take them? Like we know where we want to take them, but we have to, but if you're not aware that you have to meet them where they are, when you start, then you're sort of, you're sort of like explaining jokes to people. Like, well, why don't you think this is funny? Don't you, don't you get the punchline and you never set up, you know, yeah. or, or they weren't born to the culture and they're just like, I don't know why that's funny. That's just, you're just saying things to me. Um, so to see that, see that, you know, right at the top and also to see Steinbeck saying it, that it actually makes some things click for me because of how formative back in high school Steinbeck was for me on a whole lot of levels. Um, oh, great. That was one of those classic uh, Noah footnotes that, that is masquerading as a question. So sorry about that. Um, it's great. It's great. I mean, did, did you to turn this into a question? Were these things that came to you through experience or were these things that were that were long held convictions because what you had seen early enough uh, in in your days as a, as an effects designer, as a magician, as as someone who you know grew up in a household where you know Dungeons and Dragons was you know your dad's day job, right? Like were these things that were just always with you, or or did you find them over time? Yeah, um, you know it's a lot like. Uh... A slumdog millionaire or something right where where you kind of look back and and you go well my whole life kind of led up to this book um where when i was a uh, you know been playing dnd since i was a little kid because i it's the household i grew up in um uh, having a famous dnd author for a, a father and uh and uh and then visual effects had such a big influence on on uh design for the void and, uh, and, and the resulting, uh, commentary in the book, as well as, uh, growing up, uh, obviously constantly getting story lessons from my dad, uh, that stuff just sort of, uh, I imagine it's a lot this way for every, I, people say, oh yeah, my dad was this. And so I, I kind of understand it. And I get that. Like, like you just sort of, whether it's through osmosis or just through a million little lessons over time, these things would sort of sink in, you know, my dad would, he would do random uh, these, these sort of D and D stories, uh, when we were on long drives and we'd each take a character and we wouldn't have dice. We would just, uh, this is what I'm doing. And then he would say, okay, this is what happens and I'm going to attack. And, and, and we would play out these whole D and D adventures without even rolling dice. Cause they were all just sort of story and building 
on on the car trip uh and and you just learn things just from from that and uh so i i i learned a lot uh obviously from my dad uh from story and uh and uh, my mom's uh she's an artist and and is into all sorts of uh, different arts and and uh growing up that that was a big part of me as well i mentioned her in the book as as being a big influence on me so I was very fortunate to have two two artistic parents that were very nurturing. So all of that helped, uh, and then jumping into visual effects that helped. Being a magician uh, from a very young age uh, was obviously a huge help. And then all the different books on magic theory that I read were all super important. Um, and uh, I took all of that, and then when we started the void, started applying lessons where I thought I could from all that information to uh, our work at the void. And some of the things worked great and some of the things didn't work at all. Uh, and in the book, I even mentioned some of the things that didn't work, that I was just sure were going to be amazing and, and did not work. Um, and so and, and then so the experience of the void was uh, very eye opening. And my experience at Evermore is very eye opening, designing haunts and uh, struggling with throughput and struggling with uh, people not doing what they, they supposed to be doing. Uh, you know, I designed it. Why aren't they doing the thing? Uh, and anyway, so all these things really just came together in into uh, you know it's 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 almost like a not a moment of my life was wasted uh, if the purpose of my life was to write this book. Uh, so uh, I don't know that maybe it makes it sound like the book is 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 way better than it is because uh, there's, there's <laughs> the still a long way for me to go to you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but, I, but I mean to 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 act as hype man for a second for the book and for you in this moment, it's been really fun seeing how many people are picking it up uh, in our circles. Um, I was on blue sky and like, you know, mentioned I was reading it uh, and serenity Caldwell just like jumped in. It was like, Oh, it's really good. And this is happening, you know, across the board. There's folks at like the Johnny Carson center in Lincoln, Nebraska, who are like, Oh, yep, just finished it. And, you know, Scott Stein of CNET is, you know, digging into it and, and I'm recommending it to people like particularly folks who I had conversations years ago about, you know, the intersection of magic and immersive experience, like folks, folks who are, you know, active in the board of the magic castle being like, Oh, did you know about this one? You should, you should get this one. Or like folks who I've had long, you know, discourses about, experience design and you know fan engagement and then sort of like pushing it on people not just because oh the void guy's written it but now having like you know read through it i mean i'm i'm teaching a course at cal arts in the fall and i'm like oh man you know like uh there's no textbook for the class but like i could definitely see like all telling them all like all right well you want to you want to get the cheat codes uh go pick up curtis's <laughs> book because you'll you'll you'll, you'll <laughs> race ahead of everybody else um, cause it's also just the way, you know, there it's, things are broken down enough, right? Like you, you take that time to codify things. And I think a lot of people in this moment are trying to do that across the board. And it's, that makes it a beautiful moment. And I think we're going to see this sort of, there's all these tributaries kind of coming into the river of, of immersive and experience design. Uh, and so much of that's based on, you know, we've had this incredible decade worth of work, the, the work that you have been doing, the work that Punch Drunk was doing, you, you get folks in all sorts of companies, you get third rail projects out there doing stuff. Um, to, to that end, you know, you you make reference to like 
a few live action pieces in in the book. You also make reference to some like smaller scale stuff. Like there was a reference to to uh, Unchained in here, or, or Unchained or is it Chained? I can't remember what Justin called that, but you know the the, the Christmas Carol one uh, where you get pulled through the wall, right? Like you make references there. How how much of the smaller scale immersive work were you absorbing uh, during during the the salad days of the void? Um, you know, it's, it was, it's good to live so close to Sundance. Uh, that helps. that's just, <laughs> it helps a lot. That's up the hill. So we would, every year we head up there and, and see all the, the, the cool immersive experiences and, and, uh, projects there. Uh, and we would do that every year and that was great. Uh, and then every now and then I'd make a trip, um, to just to go see some certain specific things. Uh, but most of the time we're just busy just trying to make our own stuff that, that I, I haven't, I haven't gone out and seen nearly as much as uh, some of my other peers or the people I know have, have done. And I'm very jealous of that. Uh, but uh, it was, uh, I don't know, you know, it was always really neat seeing those little projects and especially in those earlier days where everything was, um, there was just so much new uh, and, and, and experiments and there's a lot still being done. Uh, but I, I don't know, those early days of, of uh, putting an Oculus on, on somebody and, and trying things out uh, it was uh, just it was really inspirational and really cool to see. And uh, uh, like I said, I wish I could have seen more of it, but I, uh, I don't know. I love all forms of immersive entertainment. And, uh, and honestly, I've never, I don't think I've ever been to something immersive where I didn't walk away having learned something. In the book, you give a fairly in-depth walkthrough of Jumanji Reverse the Curse. Yeah. Uh, and I was so glad you did, because I was lucky enough to experience it that, but it was cut short by pandemic. And in that one, I thought you really started to get at some of the social split reality affordances of the platform. I wonder if you could dive in a little here on how your approach to that one as a group experience went, because I got I got so excited seeing how you were playing with the dynamics of of you know, giving characters unique perspectives on the shared space, for instance. Yeah, giving, having, having like relativistic abilities for, for different characters is, is something that of course uh, VR particularly is like designed for uh, and is, is just so very good at. But we've also had a lot of struggles uh, getting that concept across because Reality doesn't generally work that way. Um, so if, because we all assume that, that whatever I see, someone else can see, we're all, we're all experiencing the same reality, uh, which is again, another subject because we're not, but uh, in general, we think we are. Um, and so I, like, I remember one time when we, in our Wreck-It Ralph experience, we, uh, we had, I don't know if I talk about this in the book or not, but we have circles uh, on the floor and we assigned each guest a place to stand. And so uh, essentially you had uh, Vanellope saying, hey, everyone go stand in your circle or something like that. And, and we just expected the guests to go find their circle and stand in it. We would only show them their circle. Uh, and in playtesting, we just watched this mom next to her son say, go stand in the circle. And she's pointing over to this <laughs> blank space of ground. And the kid's like, I am standing in my circle. And she's like, no, it's over here. And, and he's like, no, Ma. and they got in this big argument. Uh, and we were like, all right, 
we're going to have to change that. And so from then on, we, we made it so that all four circles for each guest appeared on the ground uh, because the, the, just having a relativistic circle for each individual person uh, was, was confusing. That's incredible. Um, that's yeah, it's it truly really wild. What, what's going? I, I'm, you get a glimpse of what's going in your mind, you know, in that moment, and it it can kind of make a little sense. Why is he not in the circle? He should be in the circle. That's the circle. He's always not in the circle, right? Right. Like, exactly. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to know about that family dynamic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Johnny, get in your circle. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, so it was good. And, but we, so when we did Jumanji, we, we took sort of a lot of those lessons about relativistics to heart and uh, it's, it's still tough. Like it's still, I think uh, a, a lesson that we're trying to teach and get across and, and get people to understand. Uh, and uh, in, in Jumanji, there's a bunch of that. There's someone who can read a language that nobody else can read. Um, there's someone who can talk to animals. There's somebody who can uh, like, everyone's got their own abilities, right? Yeah, uh, and relativistics played a big part of that, but it, but um, and it's it's tough. It's still it's still difficult to to get that idea across to everybody. And so we really we made it we made it almost part of the, like the critical thought is that that this is a dynamic of this world. So hop on board because uh, it uh, that that's the only way you're going to make it through without being totally confused. And I think for the most part we were pretty successful with with doing that. I. I was really impressed by how it came together. It's one also that felt most like a role-playing module was how yes. those, those things, you know, stick where it's like the, the party together, only together can the party solve the bigger problem. And that, that yeah. was a, that was a very fun dynamic to be part of. And honestly, Jumanji was kind of our first step down what was going to be a much longer road as we get into like infinite, the infinite stage into much longer experiences and everyone having their own sort of class abilities and, and really pushing kind of down that D&D road uh, much, much further. Uh, so hopefully sometime in the future, we'll, we'll be able to get back uh, heading down that road because I, I just, I want that experience uh, of being in a world for hours and having powers and abilities and living out these long stories. Like that's just so much, we just never quite got where I wanted to go with, with the void previously. And, uh, it's it's just cool stuff that that's just waiting to be done. One last thing before I let you go. Here we are in 2023. We're at this interesting inflection point where you know VR and AR are you know going through a churn again. Metaverse was hot. Now it's not. The immersive experiences stuff like it's it's some of it's going really well. Some of it's kind of shaky. How do you feel about across the board? you know, in the art and experience land where the future of hyper-reality is at, or or the present of hyper-reality is at this particular moment and, and maybe the, that 18 months ahead. I like... Things are still trending toward experiential entertainment. Um, you know, there was, a, I think, a, a fear that isolation of the pandemic would actually sort of start to turn that ship. Uh, but if anything, I feel like it, it just got people wanting uh, experience and wanting connection and wanting uh, more socialization. So I, uh, that's, that's been great. I feel like it's, it's almost, if, if anything, accelerated the need for these sort of experiences, uh, especially when it comes to hyper-reality, this idea of, of living impossible experiences or being able to do amazing, incredible things 
inside of an experiential platform that you could otherwise not have is um, there's there's a sense of wonder and amazement that you lose at some point from being a kid to becoming an adult. And it's the most attractive part of magic for me as a magician is that moment of astonishment, that, 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 that feeling inside where like, Whoa, like that disappeared or what in that, what in the world just happened of, of not understanding something and not knowing and feeling like you just saw something miraculous uh, that, that can sort of pull you back to that that time when you were a kid and you woke up and Santa Claus had come in the morning, uh, and I feel that feeling is such a great little piece of joy uh, that I, you know, I I I love that and I want to see that in more and more experiences, um, and I want that to be part of 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 the experiences that people are having in these in these uh, events, large or small, and. Uh, um, that's it's harder that you know it's it's not all it's not done and sometimes it's done poorly because it's not easy necessarily mm-hmm. to do that uh but i feel like uh, we should all be be trying for that because there's a real value in that feeling and in that that moment that you can give people uh that, that they just it's again it's something they'd lost that we can give back to them so that's that's where i'd like to see it go and i've seen a little bit of that and i'd like to see more of it Curtis Hickman, co-founder and chief creative officer of The Void, author of Hyperreality, The Art of Designing Impossible Experiences. You'll find all that, folks, in the show notes. Curtis, thank you for being on the show today. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Once again, I want to thank Curtis for being our guest on the show today. Hyperreality, the art of designing impossible experiences. It is a must read for those of you who design impossible experiences. If you're working in immersive, be there, be it uh, particularly if you're in the VR side, the XR side, but even if you're on the live side, check this book out. It is a treasure trove. I am so happy it came out right before I dive into teaching college for the first time. Uh, what a godsend. Um, okay. Uh, this is the second version of this because the previous version of this was way too rambly and, and hedgy. Uh, check it. Um, want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the combined WGA SAG after a strike that's going on right now. So uh, SAG is uh, adopting some tactics around the promotion of struck work and uh, the messaging from SAG uh, has been a little unclear at times. I don't feel uncomfortable saying that because everybody's saying that, but also it has been. It's a little it's a little hard to tell what work they're objecting to promoting if it isn't work that's clearly live action work that's something that just came out. They're also discouraging influencers and podcasters and all sorts of folks from covering anything, doing like rewatches of old shows that are currently on streaming platforms. That is something they're actively doing. Now, look, we don't do rewatch shows. I mean, maybe we should. Uh, Not right now, but like in general, maybe. I don't know. We don't do that kind of stuff because we're focused on immersive arts and entertainment. But a big part of that world is the marketing of immersive, uh, of using immersive to market other 
things, namely film and television. And a lot of people in our space, they make, they make their, their living for the year doing that kind of work. And right now, SAG is making it pretty clear that folks who do that kind of work, that is promoting struck work, uh, could find themselves never being able to get into SAG if that is their ambition. Um, now, I'm not running around with any... <laughs> I mean, look, maybe when I'm older, I'll, I'll, I'll throw the actor, you know, mode back on or something like that. Like when I have a few less responsibilities in my life and I can get back to my, my first love. But um, I, I'm not concerned for myself about, you know, whether or not, you know, we covered an activation promoting a streaming platform as a whole or a particular show that it would like affect me. I do worry about some of the people who are in our stable of writers uh, that uh, maybe that could keep their careers back in the long run. And I also have concerns for the folks who are making it, um, for, for the people who are performing in that stuff. So, you know, I would say if you are a member of SAG uh, and you're looking at, you know, picking up some side work, doing promotions, please talk to your strike captains, talk to your, talk to your union reps about like what is and what isn't. Have clarity around that. Uh, I would also tell that to anyone who is producing any of this stuff, get clarity around it. Uh, because what you don't want to do is find yourself hobbled in the long term because of what's going on in the short term. Hopefully, hopefully, though there's going to be some motion to bring everyone back to the table. There was already some motion earlier in the week for, for the WGA, to, you know, AMPTP was saying, well, hey, WGA, let's, why don't we come back to the table? That could be good. But that was to like, you know, can we get some committees together to discuss committees to discuss? Right. And we all we all know that could be a while. And you also have the studio heads out there saying like, all, oh, yeah, we saved one hundred million dollars last month because we didn't make anything. You know, my favorite one was someone said like, yeah, I spent I, I saved fifteen dollars yesterday because I didn't eat, you know, like this. It, it ain't sustainable, buddy. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> Seriously. If you're making work, please check and make sure that you're not setting yourself up for a fall. That's number one. Number two, our editorial policy here at No Proscenium for the duration of the SAG after strike is that we will not cover activations that are promoting struck work. Full stop. Full stop. Does that cut down on some of the stuff we'd be doing a, a bit? Not may not a huge amount. <laughs> it depends on how much of this stuff there is. I also don't think there's going to be all that much, but we will be checking. So there may be some things that we're skipping this year because of, of these terms. Um, I would also encourage anyone else who's covering to take a look at the guidance. Um, it is not applying at the moment to print. Uh, that's not something that they've pushed out on, but it's it's probably just a matter of time uh, before they issue that guidance. Or maybe they'll walk it back. Maybe a week from now, you know, things will have changed. Uh, it is a bit hazy. I don't have a full grasp on it, and I've I've even read some of the I've read the fact on podcasting, and honestly, I I, I couldn't quite parse entirely. Uh, what was and wasn't covered. Uh, but I think that has a lot to do with the fact that 
a lot of it's talking about, well, if it's under this contract or under that contract, and I'm not familiar with those contracts, right? So not fully read in for context, which just makes it a little bit, the safe thing to do is be like, oh, there's an, you know, there's a, this show's getting an escape room, right? Nope, not going, struck work, right? You know, uh, this streamer's doing a promotional event. Nope, not going, struck work. Uh, it's just gonna be cleaner in the long run. And hopefully, uh, it also means that the strike resolves faster and we can get everyone back to work because uh, it's getting miserable uh, on so many levels. And uh, we love cultural production in every way, shape, and form and want to see more of it. So uh, that's what's up with that. Just uh, be mindful. Check your contracts. Check your sixes. Uh, don't screw your career up for uh, for a short-term game. Um, it, 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 it's not worth it. It's, it's just not. Life is a life is a long, long slog with plenty of surprises. Uh, you know, don't dig a hole. All right. On that aggressively cheery note, we're going to close this one off. I'm going to get to those calls and get this uh, podcast up. The associate producer for No Persinium is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Siobhan Lachlan for voicing our intro. This thing is written, edited, hosted, produced, mixed by yours truly. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next time, I'll see you at the show.